When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Good to talk. Welcome, listeners, to our third podcast of the week. And having taken a week off, I guess it was important to catch up on all of the news we missed. We've covered a lot of Ireland over the last couple of podcasts because there's been quite a few data releases from Ireland. So today is really an Ireland-free zone. We want to discuss food price inflation and some developments in India, which suggest actually that the outlook for food price inflation may not be as benign as some have believed in recent times. And I think I want to tie that into the sort of backlash that's happening against Bidenomics at the moment, because I think the two, I think the two are related in the sense that what India is doing with rice exports is kind of linked to the whole global trend in trade at the moment and the sort of backlash we're seeing against Biden and his attitude towards trade. Um, I want to look at UK politics because we've had three significant by-elections in the UK, which didn't turn out quite as bad for the Prime Minister as some were predicting. There's a lot going on in China. Indeed, I've kind of noticed over the last month that a lot of global economic discourse and discussion is increasingly centering around China and what's happening there. So as the world's biggest, second biggest economy, I think it's important to actually contextualize what's happening there. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Australia. Um, and I read every morning the Sydney Morning Herald. There's a story during the week about just how much the Australians are feeling the whole cost of living problem at the moment. I, I guess I'm saying that in the context of the sort of very negative narrative we get here in Ireland about just how bad things are here and how good things are in Australia. So I just want to put a bit of context on that. And finally, we had the um, energy report from the International Energy Agency earlier this week, which I think is quite significant in the context of where energy prices might go as we move into the winter months again. But starting on the Indian 
food price thing. Um, India has just announced a ban on the exports of non-basmati white rice. Okay, and the rationale that the Indian government has provided domestically is to try and lower the domestic price of rice. So in other words, by diverting exports back into the domestic market, the increase in supply will force prices down. And over the last 12 months, rice prices in India have increased by 11%. Um, India accounts for 40% of global rice exports. It is a stable part of the stable diet for billions of people around the world. So if this ban on exports impacts on global rice prices, well, clearly it's going to have a significant impact, particularly in poor countries where there's a high dependence on rice. But tied into that is what we've seen happen in Russia over the last week. Um, the Russians are clearly targeting grain ships and grain storage silos at the moment. Um, and we're, we're seeing lots of uh, pictures coming out of Ukraine um, in relation to that. Uh, the Russians have pulled out of the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which was agreed a year ago to keep grain exports moving through the Black Sea. So if you combine what the Indians are doing on the rice export front with the impact that the Russian stance towards grain over the last week is having on wheat prices, well, clearly it would suggest that there is a distinct risk that rather than abating that food price inflation will actually become a significant issue again as we move into the winter months. And of course, from um, a central bank's perspective, anything that fuels further inflation is certainly not good news. So I, I think in, in terms of the overall global food supply chain, what's happening in India, what's happening in Russia is of great significance. Yes, the developments overnight really in Ukraine as a result of Russian actions following their pulling out of the Black Sea food initiative, uh, I think is terribly significant. But in a way, it's also very puzzling because there's no obvious military advantage in terms of the war aims that Russia has in Ukraine from sending cruise missiles to destroy grain silos in Odessa, which is what they did overnight, which was what they did the night before. In fact, in Odessa overnight, there were two waves of very serious cruise missiles, caliber cruise missiles and other types, including Iranian-supplied drone missiles. And pictures have emerged, as you said, of silos completely mangled, burning. There are fire engines, pictures of fire engines completely destroyed as a consequence of attending the first missile strike and then being hit in the second missile strike. So the question naturally arises, what is Russia up to? Now, of course, it could be up to absolutely nothing and is just lashing out. And I often think when you observe these sorts of things that power is, is, is a deadly thing in sometimes in that uh, when people or institutions or governments have lots of power, they feel um, impelled to, to use it uh, when they, to, to no obvious advantage. The one thing that they might be trying to do, this is one of two very sort, I think, flaky ideas that I've got. They are conscious that in recent weeks, the, the global inflation story, which they helped to cause by their, inf their invasion of Ukraine via energy and food prices, the global inflation stories you and I have talked about has started to abate. 
And Putin probably doesn't like that. He prefers chaos rather than calm in global markets, in global economies. So this would be one way of getting central banks, as you hinted at earlier on, Jim, back into trouble on the inflation story. And if because inflation goes up again because of food price inflation, then the hope that we all have that the peak in interest rates on both sides of the Atlantic is close uh, may prove to be short-lived. I don't know whether that's joining too many dots, uh, whether Putin is capable of thinking economically, strategically, but that's certainly one consequence, one possible consequence of, of, of what he's up to. Uh, another way in which it, it, they, there's no obvious advantage to be gained by Russia is, is not just on the battlefield in Ukraine, because destroying Ukraine's uh, grain shipment facilities doesn't help uh, Russian soldiers in Ukraine, and it doesn't really hinder Ukrainian soldiers. All it does is that it impoverishes Ukraine a little bit further um, and maybe uh, disturbs their morale. And it strikes me that um, it's a bit like they, their attempts to destroy civilian energy infrastructure during the winter. You might remember that they bombed the, the hell out of power stations all over Ukraine in the hope that civilian morale would collapse in Ukraine, perhaps forcing Zelensky to the negotiating table in a weak position and be forced to make territorial concessions. That didn't happen, as is often the case with civilian bombing campaigns throughout military history. I'm sure you know this, Jim is that it just hardens attitude amongst that civilian population, makes them even more determined to resist. That, I think, has been the typical experience rather than causing civilian population morale to collapse. So it's not obvious what he's up to. Um, there is a story in the FT this afternoon that says uh, that he has now approached Qatar with a, a deal that they will ship or, or pay Moscow uh, some sum of money, or Moscow will pay them some sum of money, rather, to ship grain uh, via Turkey to Africa. Because the other thing that this policy does is that it alienates Russia's new friends in the Global South, as it's called. The Global South has remained steadfastly neutral on the Ukraine war, much to the West's chagrin, and has tried to stay out of it, basically, and think that and says that uh, blame lies on both sides. Um, we in the West obviously disagree with that, but there we are. And of course, uh, Pakistan was just one country overnight to ask for the Black Sea Grain Initiative to be put back, back in place. Because food price inflation and food shortages hit all of us, of course, but it's the poor that get hurt the most in these circumstances. And those countries are just like individuals that have to spend a large proportion of their small income on food. You get hurt the most when food prices go up. So African countries in particular, poorer Asian countries, they're all saying to Russia, what on earth are you doing? And uh, this idea that there is going to be uh, shipments of Russian grain directly to, to Africa in particular uh, it has emerged today. I have my doubts about whether it could be made operationally uh, meaningful, but, but we shall see. The only other thing that Putin could be up to is that he genuinely wants um, some kind of sanctions relief uh, on his own exports. Now, food exports from Russia, I don't think are sanctioned at all anyway. So I don't know what his complaints actually are. But he seems hell bent on extracting some kind of concession from the West on san sanctions, maybe. So it's puzzling. It's bloody awful, to be honest, when you think about the consequences yet again of another boost to uh, food prices. Uh, that said, 
Wheat prices, perhaps the bellwether of what we're talking about here, have risen 10, 11% this week. So they're nowhere near where they got back to at the beginning of the war. Uh, they are well, well below those peaks. So we haven't had an outright panic in grain markets because Russia and Ukraine are not the only suppliers of grain to world markets. The supply-demand balance depends on many different countries' production of these grains. And uh, Canada and the US are two big, big producers where there are hopes, particularly in Canada, that uh, things may be okay from the harvest this year. So grain prices have reacted. They've reacted in ways that we wouldn't like. They've reacted in ways that poor people certainly wouldn't like. And they've reacted in ways that central bankers wouldn't like. But it's not been sufficient, I think, to to get us uh, very worried. But it, 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 it has the potential to cause yet more inflation and food poverty problems going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned there that India accounts for 40% of global rice exports. Uh, Russia accounts for 20% of global wheat exports and the Ukraine for 10%. So it's not the whole global market. And I think one of the reasons why global markets are relatively relaxed at the moment, despite what has happened during the week, is the fact that global grain stocks are actually pretty high for this time of year. Uh, but you know, if the the Russian situation continues to evolve in this direction, well, clearly that could become a bit of an issue again. So it's it's certainly one to watch. And I totally agree with you, Chris, that the last thing we really want at this stage is another bout of food price inflation to feed into everything else that's happening. Um, moving on to China, Chris, um, as I said in my introduction, over the last month, China is really dominating a lot of global economic discourse. And, you know, I'll talk about the, the sort of economic data coming out at the moment. But uh, I, I think one of the real issues for China at the moment, particularly for investment in China, is the growing authoritarianism of Xi Jinping's um, regime. And um, a, lot, a lot of Western companies are reporting the sort of pressure that's been brought to bear on how they handle data, all sorts of interference with investment in China. And I think many businesses will now take the view that actually investing in China does have attaching significant geopolitical risk. Um, and as a consequence of that, you know, we are starting to see a lot of investment being diverted to other countries like Vietnam, Indonesia and so on. That's certainly true in the case of FDI flows and corporate flows. But one of the interesting th pieces of data that was released this week, Jim, totally backs up just what you said in that certain agencies collect data on capital flows to Chinese equity markets. There is something called the Emerging Markets Index, of which China is a very big part. And people have noticed that money is flooding into emerging markets, stock markets, equities, except for China. So the orders are being placed by global fund managers to get the exposure to emerging markets because we like the developing story of the world economy perhaps being in a bit better shape than previously thought. They like the story that the dollar is weakening, which traditionally is very good for emerging markets, but they don't like the China story. And they're saying, get me exposure to emerging markets, but not China. And I think that's part of a piece that's just as you described it there. People do not want exposure to China. And that's linked to all sorts of things. There's the domestic situation that you've just described there, the authoritarian creep, 
that is going on in China, the authoritarian creep that is running China. The, the other, of course, is linked to Bidenomics, which is that Biden is trying to transform the world economy in an America first, almost Trumpian kind of way. Unlike Trump, he's uh, doing something as opposed to just talking about it. But China's in a lot of trouble, Jim, because of these, this caught in this pincer movement of domestically it's weak, internationally people don't want to invest in it anymore. And perhaps the most visible manifestation of this is their economic data, which we've discussed previously, which is weak and keeps coming in weaker than expected. They're still growing on the official data, but who knows what, what quality that data actually is. But the thing that we keep hearing bubbling below the surface are troubles in the Chinese real estate property market. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Yeah, I mean, the quarter two GDP data this week showed that the economy expanded by just 0.8%, uh, which is very, very weak by Chinese standards. Youth unemployment has increased to 21% of the labor force. Uh, the property market is in serious trouble and 25% of economic output is accounted for by property development. So clearly, if property is taking a hit, the impact on the overall economy is going to be significant. And I think another point is that 70% of personal wealth in China is estimated to be tied up in property. So if property prices are falling, the consumer wealth effect is very, very significant. Um, you know, we, we've, we've mentioned what's happening on the investment side with the increased restrictions being put in place by the regime, making China quite unattractive. Exports are clearly under significant pressure. So it's, it's, it's not a great economic story. Uh, but then, you know, an, another part of this is there was stats out during the week showing that China has, is importing record levels of Russian oil at the moment. Um, it's number one, lending support to Russia. Secondly, it is availing of cheap Russian oil to increase its stocks of oil. And it's also using this cheap imported oil to try and grow its exports of refined products. So here we go again, you know, the relationship between the United States and China and the impact that Russia is having on global geopolitical relationships is absolutely extraordinary. And the tentacles are spreading everywhere. So it, it's a remarkable story. I think that's evolving in China. And I have just been reading a book that was written back in 2015. Um, it's like a lot of books on my bookshelf. It takes me years to get around to reading it. I eventually do. But this is a book called Dealing with China um, by Hank Paulson, who was the former CEO of Goldman Sachs and also former Secretary of the U.S. Treasury. But I, I'll just read a quote here from that book. 
Um, speaking about reform in China is not an empty slogan, but rather an enterprise. President Xi Jinping assured me during a wide-ranging talk in July 2014, in our system of Leninist democratic centralism, I myself have to take responsibility for this. So clearly back then in 2014, Xi Jinping appeared intent on continuing the trend that had been building over the previous 20 years uh, about, you know, increasingly reforming, opening up the Chinese economy, um, gradually introducing more and more elements of free market capitalism. And China was doing that in a very, um, I think, gradual way and, and in, in a way that was quite stable, you know, unlike Russia, um, in the late 80s, early 90s, when there was big bang and the impact was quite dramatic, whereas China was doing it by degrees. But it is clear that Xi Jinping has forgotten all about that and that China is now very much reverting to the China of old. And uh, that's going to have very, very significant consequences for uh, the global economy and global geopolitical relations and throw into the middle of that um, the antics of Russia, and uh, certainly there's cause there for sleepless nights. Absolutely, Jim, and I'm minded to ask you a question which would be very, very unfair, which is if this continues to get more and more difficult for Xi Jinping, what strategy would he adopt, or rather what tactic would he adopt to try and get himself out of it? Because if he, as you say, is take, taking responsibility for everything that happens in China, it, the, the outlook at the moment isn't great from a lack of foreign investment from the property sector, bubble finally bursting, we've been waiting for that one for years. Will invading Taiwan be the distraction that he needs? Exactly. That is exactly, yeah. So I won't ask you that question, whether you think he will invade Taiwan or not, because it would be very unfair. I've no idea, but I'm really, I'm really very worried. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a 50-50 chance he will. Mm. It's not a good look, is it? No, no, it's not. Chris, I mentioned the Australian piece and that I, I, I look at the Australian Morning Herald every morning and uh, there was a story earlier this week that consumers are struggling badly with rising interest rates, with high power bills and electricity prices. Uh, 51% of respondents to a YouGov survey said they're struggling to pay um, un- unexpected expenses and for, for low-income earners, 64% are in trouble with those unexpected expenses. Um, and 51% of Australians currently believe that their economy is set to get significantly worse over the coming months. And um, I, I mentioned this uh, you know, coming shortly after I spoke about the problems in the housing market in Australia and the difficulty people are having in getting on the housing ladder and so on and rising interest rates, the impact of all of that. You know, all of this stuff sounds very familiar. It's the sort of stuff that people are giving out about in this country. And um, Australia is being set up as the place where young Irish people should go. It's going to be great. But as a country, it is having its own problems as well. So I, I guess the point I'm really trying to make is that you know, we talk about and there's a lot of political discourse about the problems facing Ireland. Every country in the world is facing significant problems of one variety or another. So Ireland is not unique. And in many ways, 
the one thing we really do have going for us as a country is that you know we are still growing strongly we are generating lots of tax revenues we are generating lots of jobs so it could be significantly worse than it is absolutely and that's the thing always to consider when looking at the various policy platforms of the various parties that will be campaigning for your votes in the upcoming Irish general election, which will probably happen within a year or so, is that, that, of course, all of them will be promising to make things better. But just remember that they could make things an awful lot worse. Uh, I go on and on about the state of the UK at the moment, and I won't speak too much about it today because I know people are getting fed up with my uh, doom and gloom stories about the UK. Uh, I could devote another few podcasts to it if people, if, if anybody is interested. But one statistic caught my eye this week that is relevant to what you just said, Jim, which is the way in which the rental market is really misbehaving in the UK now. It's not just the buying of houses and flats, it's the renting of them. And rental prices moved up to all-time highs at a very fast rate over the last while. And it's the fastest rate of growth since this particular data series came into being, uh, admittedly only a few short years ago. But rents are skyrocketing in the UK. Does that sound familiar? It sounds very familiar, Chris. Absolutely. Um, The International Energy Agency this week published its annual gas market report. Um, And if you think back to this time last year, you know, we were a few months into the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, and over the, the next couple of months, um, all the concerns were arising about going, coming into the winter, about the supply of natural gas, about the price of natural gas. Um, and there were deep concerns in some countries in Europe um, that we would actually would have energy blackouts. Um, and in the event, all of that was avoided largely because um, the Europe diversified away from Russian gas, uh, particularly towards Norway it was a very mild winter and also the calls of governments on people to actually improve their energy efficiency actually did work and did reduce demand for gas by about 10% last winter. So there was a combination of fortuitous factors and some delivered that got us through the winter without any sort of energy crisis. But the International Energy Agency is now warning coming into this winter that um, Europe could face a difficult winter if Russia cuts its remaining gas supplies to the continent and if cold weather were to hit. And who knows, you know, there's a lot of ifs and buts there. But um, they were saying that even if Europe's gas storage is at 100% by October, this would be no guarantee of remaining immune from future tensions that might arise, particularly from Russia and, and, of course, from the weather. Um, and I and I also think it's it's worth putting this in context as well. You know, the the benchmark gas price in Europe at the moment is trading under twenty five euro a megawatt hour. Uh, that was over three hundred and fifty um, in August of last year. So gas prices are significantly lower. EU natural gas capacity is estimated to be at eighty percent at the moment, which is twenty percentage points above the five year average. So it would appear that Europe is in a very comfortable place coming into the winter. But I think it is worth bearing in mind and thinking about the risks that uh, the International Energy Agency was pointing out this week. Hopefully, all of this stuff will be avoided. It's, yeah, it's I'm reminded, Jim, that we talked about this ages ago yeah. when uh, it was a very live issue about whether Europe would be able to get through last winter without 
severe problems like power cuts. And there were two schools of thought, one exemplified by The Economist, who said initially, it's really, really tricky, dicey, and all that kind of stuff. And I had a little bit of a laugh at uh, The Economist's forecasting track record. And so it has proved. The Economist was, was ahead of the IEA in, in then warning about next winter. On the other side of the debate were, was, were economists at the Financial Times, particularly Chris Giles, who applied proper economic analysis to this and talked about substitution and income effects, the diversification that you mentioned there, the efficiency gains. Uh, one factor that was also important, of course, was that Germany in particular, but Europe in general, uh, sped up and was able to take on uh, much more rapidly than people previously thought liquid nat natural gas exports, particularly from the United States. But the IEA, a bit like The Economist, has a hopeless forecasting track record across many different variables, not least the oil price. Um, it's been hopeless at forecasting the improvements and upscaling of alternative energy over many years. So I think it's absolutely right for the IEA to point out these risks. I think if all of these bad things do happen, we could have a bad winter in the sense, as you say, about weather and Many people are surprised to learn that we're still importing Russian gas. We are. We shouldn't be, in my opinion. And it, in many ways, I think it would be a good thing if our gas imports from Russia went to zero. But I, I would be still on the optimistic side. I, I think the big falls in energy prices are almost by definition, given the numbers that you just quoted there, Jim, over. Uh, it gets harder from here to get them down, and they may well go up again. But I don't think I don't think that we are at high risk of revisiting these numbers that we saw last summer. But the IEA, as I say, is right to warn about it. If a whole confluence, a whole series of bad things happen together, then we could get back into trouble. But you know, Jim, that's always true about so many different things. And I think that we ought to be a wee bit, given the way in which everybody, nearly everybody, was so pessimistic about the energy outlook this time last year, uh, I think a little bit of optimism is warranted. And I think that those energy efficiency gains are going to continue. I do think that the diversification strategies are going to continue. That said, I'm not sure they're going to continue very much here in the UK, where one of my favorite topics, one of our favorite topics, Jim, actually, is wind energy. And people may be surprised to learn that we've written several reports on alternative energy, particularly wind in recent years, for various clients, and that... Uh, Therefore, we know a little bit about wind. That's the point of that little commercial. And in the UK, over the last 12 months, they have built less wind capacity. They've added to their wind capacity at a lower rate than has Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the moral of the story from what the IEA is warning this week, it's important to identify these risks. And the, the question then for policymakers everywhere is, well, what do you do to mitigate those risks? And it's clear that you know we need to have structural reform of gas demand. You know, in other words, uh, build the whole energy efficiency argument, develop renewable energy, heat pumps, etc. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that policymakers should be pushing to mitigate those sorts of risks that the IEA is alluding to. But um, I think you're correct about the the sense of optimism. It's it's not likely to be anything likely as bad as. EIA is possibly warning, but worth keeping an eye on. Finally, Chris, um, we had three by-elections in the United Kingdom. Um, Labour won Selby and Ainsty in Yorkshire. 
Um, the Liberal Democrats won Somerton and Frome in the southwest, which is Tory heartland, I believe. Uh, the Tories won Oxbridge and South Ryslip in London, which was um, Boris Johnson's seat. And um, it, it's funny looking at the, the reasons given as to why Labour failed to take that seat, despite expectations to the contrary. Um, basically, it was a response of the electorate to plan the planned extension of ultra-low emission zones, which is increased charges on polluting vehicles that Sadiq Khan is trying to push. And it just shows um, the popular attitude towards mitigating climate change. Yes, uh, it, does, it reveals several problems. Um, first, how stupid many people are to be voting against mitigating climate change because they're, yeah. vote, they're voting... Uh, according to the science anyway, for their own extinction. And pollution levels in the parts of London that these people were voting are noxious they, and, and deadly. And the, the particular, the nitrous oxide stuff that uh, a lot of older diesel cars emit, yeah. the data is there to show, causes huge, huge health problems. And we suspect many, many deaths. So voting for that kind of, voting against mitigation of those sorts of things is frankly daft. Uh, I would point out also that the turnout in those three by-elections was each something like 40-odd percent, so more people didn't vote than voted. That, for a political anorak such as myself, and I also think probably you, Jim, is an extraordinary statistic that, given these troubled times that we live in and all of the complaints that we have that people can't be bothered their asses to try and vote for the changes that we need, that that's just amazing. As an economist on those charges. What I would say is that maybe the lesson is that we are stupid and we do vote for our own extinction. And if therefore incentives matter so that asking people to pay higher carbon prices is something that they're not willing to do, despite it um, destroying their own and their, in particular their children's futures, what we have to do is that we have to make the alternatives cheaper rather than making carbon more expensive so that we have to incentivize the stupid to do the right thing. And the way in which we do that, going back to my comments about wind, is tapping into the fact that around these islands, both the island of Great Britain and the island of Ireland, there's enough wind energy untapped for us to be able to supply 100% of our needs and export electricity, surplus electricity, to the rest of Europe. Uh, that's the prize that we could go for, and we could clean up our air. We could we could do our bit for the environment, on our own. Of course, we're never going to solve the planet's problems. That's up to China and the United States. But I do think that ethically and morally and scientifically, there are lots and lots of things that we could, and should be doing. But politically, I think it was unambiguously good news for Keir Starmer. I I wouldn't read too much significance into any of these by elections, other than everybody, with the exception of a few idiots in West London. Uh, absolutely detests the Tories. <laughs> as a supporter of a football club in West London, Chris, um, I take grave exception to you describing as idiots. Uh, listen, it's good to talk. Uh, have a good weekend. And uh, I look forward to our next discussion next week. Likewise, Jim. Take it easy. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. 
Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 